Hey, hey, Beatle people. How goes it? Welcome to Ranking the Beatles, episode numero 10. I'm numero 10. <laughs> That's Spanish for number 10. Diez. Stop. <laughs> My foreign language We're skills moving are on. lacking. <laughs> uh, in case you can't tell by me, the idiot, talking. <laughs> My name's Jonathan. Over here on my left hand, my uh, my wonderfully classy and really good at foreign language, <laughs> my beautiful wife, Julia Pretis. Hello. Welcome back. Or should I say bonjour? <laughs> <laughs> Hola. <laughs> Yolo. Oh. <laughs> Hope you're all doing well. Hope you've all enjoyed the uh, first few episodes that we've had up. This has been a lot of fun. Um, how everything? How's everything going for you today? Uh, pretty well. Yeah. Pretty well. Yeah, Good. Can't really, I can't really complain about anything. As we as we tape this today, it is June the sixth, which is the anniversary of the day that John Lennon and Paul McCartney met for the first time Aww. at the Walton Village Fete. They were basically at babies. Saint Peter's Church in Liverpool. Yes, we were there. This is true. In 2017, we took a trip to Liverpool for the first time, and. Uh, we we were able to go over to St. Peter's Church, and we found the uh, church hall where, after the quarrymen set, John and the boys were having some beers, and uh, Ivan Vaughn brought Paul to meet his friend John for the first time. Thanks, Ivan. Thanks, Ivan. Appreciate that. You're a good dude. Good one, pal. Good on you. Yeah. Paul threw up some Eddie Cochran 20-flight rock to show him what he could do. Mm. After take after tuning John's guitar, I believe also he oh. showed him how to tune his guitar. Oh, wow, like kind of a saucy move for it a is. for a fifteen year old boy. <laughs> oh, is it though? Fifteen year old boys are fairly saucy. That's valid. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I think that's pretty on point. Um, yeah, so we actually went there when we were in England back in 2017, and it's right across the street from. The cemetery where the Eleanor Rigby grave is. That's so true. we got to see that as yes. well. And um, we met this like really sweet lady who had like 17 dogs. She had so many dogs. And she oh, was like, was a, I guess she was a dog walker. She had like 17 dogs. Or maybe they were her dogs. I don't know. I don't know. We didn't ask. Um, but she had like 17 dogs all on leashes. They were all tiny dogs. And some of you may not know, but we have two tiny dogs. So we were just like, ah, tiny dogs. Yes. And she was super kind and let us pet her dogs um, and then showed us, was it Aunt Mimi's grave? Yeah, we saw we, we saw John's Aunt Mimi's grave. Yeah. Um, uh, her husband, Uncle George. I think that's the name. I can't mm-hmm. remember. You have to look that up. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then she uh, pointed us across the street to the church hall and it was pretty amazing. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty cool. Very cool. You organized a little um, Liverpool tour for us that day. Um, When we planned to go to Liverpool, I was like, just do it. You know all the things. Just tell me what time to be ready and (laughs) what type of shoes to wear. And that's basically what we did. Um, We just like Ubered ourselves around Liverpool to all the cool stuff. We did to Penny Penny Lane, Lane. took an Uber over to Strawberry Fields, Mm -hmm. then went over to uh, St. Peter's, and then, you know, did the whole thing. If, if you're listening to the show, you probably know all the hot spots. We've still got the map on Google Drive. I can send it to you. Shoot us an email. Yeah. <laughs> I'll send you our trip list. It was a super <laughs> fun day, though, because we didn't do it with one of the huge tour groups. We just did it on our own. So we weren't on anyone else's schedule. So we were able to you know, take as much time as we wanted each place. We wrote our names on the wall at Strawberry Fields and... Um, spoke to the woman with the 17 tiny dogs, <laughs> you know, like we wouldn't have been able to have those experiences if we were being schlepped around on a tour bus with yeah. 50 other people. So, um, that was a really great day for us. It was that so was cold though. It was great. I so loved it. cold. I loved it. I was frozen, <laughs> just loved frozen, it. but it was great. I loved it. Yeah. We should go back once, uh, we're allowed to go into other countries yeah. in Europe again. <laughs> Yeah. Yeesh. Well, moving on from that. Yes. So to catch you up to speed, if you're new to the show, what we do here, um, I ranked 
all 223 songs recorded and released by the Beatles, from least favorite to most favorite. And on this show here, we have a different guest every week, and we discuss a song or two in those rankings to see if they're wrong or right. Um, And there really is no wrong or right. That's kind of the beauty of the whole thing. But everyone's got an opinion, so we like to hash them out, you know, as, as we do here. Uh, so to catch you up to speed, here's where our countdown has taken us so far. At 2.23, we had Silip Dik. 2.22, Come Give Me Deine Hand. 2.21, Mr. Moonlight. 2.20, P.S. I Love You. 2.19, Love You Too. 2.18, Hold Me Tight. 2.17, You Like Me Too Much. Which brings us to today's two songs, which I'm not going to get. Well, they're in the episode title. I'll just tell you. If you've got trouble <laughs> at number 216, and how do you do it at 215? Uh, so today's guest I'm really excited about. Uh, Jeffrey Rodell is a storyteller and filmmaker. He works as a media producer for the state of Louisiana and a freelance magazine writer and columnist. He's the former editor of Baton Rouge's 225 magazine and founder of Wonder South, an online platform promoting creativity and adventure and a progressive South. And his latest zine is called Life is Going to Try to Put a Lot of Polo Shirts on You, which I think is a fantastic title. That is spectacular. And like, just I fantastic. And I that yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can follow him on Instagram at Jeffrey Rodell and at Wonder South, as well as on JeffreyRodell.com. Jeffrey, welcome to the show, my friend. How are you? I'm good, Jonathan. Thanks for having me, buddy. One of the things, first things I like to ask our guests on the show, how did you first get into the Beatles? What was your entry into this fandom, this craziness? Okay, it's, this is, I don't know if this is typical or not typical, but here it is. Um, my, I grew up in a house, like, pretty conservative household. I love my parents. They're great parents, but they were not really big music people. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad didn't have a stack of records, you know, in the corner or, like, a little music room or anything. If we were listening to music in the car, it was probably, you know, kind of praise-type church music, right? Um, but uh, when I was a kid um, or, like, young teenager – a thing called the Beatles anthology was showing on broadcast TV. <laughs> you know, just remember that thing called broadcast TV. The good old days. And everybody, everybody sat the- down and watched basically the same thing. Um, so I saw I, for the first time in my life, I saw my parents devote time and attention to music mm-hmm. in a way that I hadn't before, because they literally gathered my sister and me, and invited me in. They sat down. I think it was, I think it was on ABC over yep. three nights. Yeah. And they sat sat us down. And we watched it all together three nights in a row. Mm-hmm. And and it's one of those things where you you know you end up learning a lot from your parents, uh, whether it's how to do things or how to not do things based on just their example of something. So that they didn't even really overtly tell me that they they loved this music or anything. It was just really a matter of watching them to kind of pay their respects and be very attentive to this show. The wait is over. The Beatles Anthology, tonight at 9, 8 central on A Beatles C. Looking back on it, you know, that really had this subliminal effect on me. Um, watching In the middle of watching that, my mom was like, oh yeah, I saw them in City Park in 1964. When I was 12, my, my dad took me, so her my grandpa took took my mom to see the Beatles in, uh, in New Orleans. Um, I guess that was their, I was probably their first American tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm supremely jealous of that. Yeah. That's pretty <laughs> rad. Uh, although she, all she remembers is the screams and her dad running after her because they just, they ran with like with the crowd, you know, right. about this 12 year old girl running with the crowd at the stage and he <laughs> grabbed her by the collar, you know, yeah. <laughs> come back here. Oh my um, so yeah. So that was like a big thing of just like, this is something to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I bought, I think, I think the first record I bought was that Beatles anthology one. And then I, and then I started saving up and buying the actual albums. Um, and I just, I really didn't have any context for like what an, I mean, I was such a musical novice i didn't know really what an outtake meant 
not really like I, I i mean i knew it was something that didn't make the actual album but mm-hmm. i i thought about it on a, a really deep level so but i got really excited about some of the songs that were not on actual albums so it was, it was a weird kind of backwards introduction i feel like you know it wasn't right uh please please me or sergeant pepper wasn't my first beatles album uh, the ones i started listening you know I, I remember that when free as a bird came on that that brand new video and later tonight for the first time in 25 years the beatles come together with an all-new song free as a bird on the beatles anthology which was like it's like a weird thing of um i think I, I, honestly i think it's one of the reasons that I really got into the the storytelling aspect and the the storytelling, but also the overall story of the Beatles, mm-hmm. the story of the Beatles as a creative entity, but also the story of the world kind of falling in love with this this four piece from yeah. a northern and northern England industrial town, um, and I think me me being a writer even in my early teens and, 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 and loving the idea of the, um, you know, he, Joseph Campbell's hero with a thousand faces, the, the, just a strong mythological narrative. Uh, those, those kind of forms of, of storytelling. When I think, when I think back on like how I was introduced to the Beatles, it was really at that point of, you know, what they call the return, which is like a theme that, really resonates with people, whether it's a, you know, a, a love story or whether it's, you know, an epic battle or something like that. But the wa- sitting there and watching the Beatles anthology at the point where they were sort of reintroduced in a way to mm-hmm. the American public or to the world. And, and they had this new song, like quote unquote, new song when it was, it was, it was a very, it was a moment of return. And that's the point where I entered the story and kind of, was first introduced to them and it's yeah. a weird thing and i'm still trying to kind of unpack it but i think it had a big impact on 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 how i viewed the band and i I, th- I think that's a shared that thing no that makes a lot of sense i think that's a shared experience that people of kind of our age that kind of mid to late 30s um you know i can remember having that same thing where like my parents were yeah. never huge beatles fans um i think they had one they just like all they had was like abbey road um, mm-hmm. And I can remember already kind of being a fan at that point and like watching it over those three nights. And my dad was kind of like, didn't really care too much about it. Uh, they were just kind of letting me have this one for a few nights. Um, <laughs> yeah. But watching yeah. it and, and for the first time, really getting that story aspect of it was kind of, it, it kind of set the bar for me to actually see all that visually for the first time of like, mm-hmm. this is what a band should be. This is what that story should be. Um, and I think that's something that people of our gener- people of our age, when we first see that, that informs that kind of thought, you know, that thought of what we see those kind of arcs being. Yeah. As, yeah. as opposed yeah. to someone who maybe lived through it in real time and, and, you know, doesn't see, because, you know, you kind of see those things in hindsight a little differently. Like I remember my mom telling me, you know, at the time in the late sixties, everyone thought John Lennon was just a kooky asshole. But you yeah. know, in hindsight, you're looking at like, well, he's actually doing some really creative, interesting things that's right. way outside of the norm. So it, it, it gives a different perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Time absolutely gives gives a different perspective. And and yeah, my parents were ones that for sure, if I sat that sat them down and, and asked them what their favorite albums were, you know, they really liked the mop top stuff. But as soon as the hair got long and drug references came into the music, you know, mm-hmm. they, they kind of trailed off and, and found other <laughs> artists, you know, yeah. whereas we, we kind of look at it as this, this palette, this, this body of work that's really interesting and, and, and progressed at such a rapid pace that that's, that's really remarkable for seven and a half years. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah. I often think like, how, you know, what would I have thought of them? If I, you know, if I was my dad's age, if I was, uh, if I was 17 when Sergeant Paper, Pepper came out, you know, mm. um, do you so find I'm, I'm that not, you, no. do you find that you sort of gravitate towards the anthology albums more than, you know, like the original albums? So I actually like now I really, it's, I have a playlist of of songs from the anthology albums that I'll listen to on Spotify or Apple Music, and 
it's it's only like 15 or 20 songs mm-hmm. so i love i love making playlists um uh so no i really i kind of like burned out on those a little bit and yeah. i found that uh i just once i got the the cds of the actual albums um i didn't listen to the anthology stuff quite as much although there are some I mean, and I'm sure that's like a whole other episode, but there are, there are definitely a handful of songs or versions on the anthology that I, I prefer to the actual albums for sure. Yeah. Like which ones offhand, do you know? Yeah. Um, I, I Nobody talks about this. I mean, not that people talk about this song at all, but uh, Norwegian Wood on anthology too. Mm-hmm. I like I like that. I like that one a lot better. I like the heavy, heavier sitar sound. I like um, there's double track vocals and more kind of harmony interplay between John and Paul, whereas it, it, it feels a little bit more progressive and a little bit more unique, whereas the version on the album is really nice, but it kind of feels like a folk song that happens to have sitar on it sure. uh, to me. To me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and actually, if you go on YouTube and, and search Norwegian Wood psychedelic version, there's yeah. some there's a bootleg that's even more out there mm-hmm. i'm assuming it's real i don't know that, no that uh, is that's it, an earlier take we actually no. we use that because that's one of julia's favorite songs um, yeah and in one of our intro episodes one of the questions you know is what, what are your favorite beatles songs and mm-hmm. we we talked about that because i guess the a couple weeks before this podcast idea even came to light i had i had heard that outtake on youtube mm-hmm. and played it for because we had been discussing norwegian wood and kind of how the beat, and this is kind of something we'll double back to later, but how you could hear the progression from that take to the anthology take to the album take and really yeah. see how one of the things that they always specialized in was, you know, knowing, you know, when to pull back on things and knowing how to filter mm-hmm. what they were doing um, yeah. to make things really work. Yeah, definitely. And maybe that's a product of having several strong willed people in one band mm-hmm. um you know I, I don't know but uh yeah that that's absolutely the case so that that's one um across the universe i find the anthology 2 version um just takes me to a place that the um you know the past masters kind of charity album version mm-hmm. and the, the uh let it be album version don't um i know he he kind of john kind of loses a little steam on the vocal uh, mm. on the anthology version but there's something about the instrumentation and, and the vibe of it i feel like it's probably i'm guessing but it, it feels like it's probably closer to that sort of inspirational spark or, or whatever he initially had in his mind and for whatever reason uh you know they changed their minds and they, they didn't they didn't save that that backing track or that that mix of it anyway yeah kind of messed with that one a lot um what else i like um i mean i love i love not that it's a replacement but i love the acoustic while my guitar gently weeps oh yeah it's like it's it's like a whole different yeah approach to it and it it, it makes it such a different a different vibe to it Um, yeah that alone stands as its own you know piece i think yeah and i mean you being a musician and songwriter you can probably speak to this more than i can but you know the fact that a composition can have two such radically different uh, renderings um and both still be moving and effective and make sense Mm -hmm. as a recording uh probably speaks to just how good how good the the seed of it is exactly yeah it just it shows the bones are there for you know for something great when it can stand alone you know, on its own as just an acoustic song, but then be just as strong in a full on yeah. electric version, you know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. I mean, those are some of the ones that stick out to me. I'd have to look at the, the full track list of, of those. Um, That's great though. Yeah. Those are, those are some good ones on anthology. I love the, I still love the anthologies. I, I think, now, now getting those uh, the deluxe, super deluxe sets for you know Sgt. Pepper and mm-hmm. White Album and Abbey Road, I, you can kind of see like wow, there there were a few other things they could have oh, yeah. put on there, but I'm sure voting and politics come into play and all of that. But uh, those are those super deluxe sets are really great to have too. Right, those are they're just so fun to kind of 
dive so much deeper into those records than we have before Mm -hmm. in such clean versions oh Oh, good i was gonna say i wonder like how how does like the greater beatles community (laughs) the online beatles community feel about like the anthology songs compared to you know the original songs like just some people think that some of them are better or is it just sort of universally accepted that the original releases are better i'm just kind of wondering like the reason i asked you that question jeffrey was you know sometimes when um an artist has like a a long career and people discover that artist um at different points in that career like that sort of tends to be like your favorite Mm -hmm. you know like if someone's put out five albums and you know some people that first album is just like everything to them but some people hop on at like album three some people don't even find it till album five and then they get to go back and learn everything and you know it's funny to like watch the album one yeah. people look with disdain at the album five <laughs> people and right. be like oh this is not better how could you say this is better <laughs> i i saw somebody Jerk. recently argue that like the weezer Hurley album was like top three Weezer, and I Ooh. thought I was gonna vomit. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> it was literally offensive. Um, there you go. I don't know how like the online community feels about it. Really, um, I, mean, I guess I shouldn't say specifically yeah. online community, but I think know. as as a fan, I enjoy the I enjoy them. Um, I don't see them as as replacing or better necessarily. Hmm. It's more just enhancing the experience. Um, yeah, I think yeah. the one thing that I, I see a lot online when things come out, like the anthology or the box set, is for as much great stuff as as you get as a fan. There's a lot of negativity about, well, why didn't we get this? We know this exists. Why didn't we get that? Mm-hmm. Well, there's probably a reason, sure. you know. Like, yeah, there's one. There's a track called Carnival of Light that mm-hmm. they worked on during Sergeant Pepper. That's just this. That's right. Avant-garde sound collage thing. That's like the one holy grail that no one's ever heard outside mm-hmm. of the time it was played at like a rave in oh, 1967. Wow. This is literally like, yeah, they someone commissioned Paul to make a track for a rave, and they just they just did this kind of sound collage thing. Mm-hmm. It was played real time at this rave, and then never touched again. Wow, they've never released it. Um, McCartney pushed for it to go on anthology. I think Harrison said it was just That's a little right. shit, so he didn't want it out. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So, you know, but people people gripe about not getting that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. And we so easily just become little children of wanting everything. Mm-hmm. You know, but to me the the yeah, you know, the, the box sets and the anthology, it's 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 more like it's yeah, it is less like a replacement and more like you know, it, it's the difference between looking at going to a Picasso exhibit and you know, his estate releasing a book of his sketches, you know, it's, it's more, it's like getting the Picasso sketches. It's getting the, it's getting the band's run throughs and even the mistakes, you know, and, and, and mm-hmm. yeah, I think some, I think creative people and, and super fans just love to hear, hear them banter in the studio and, yeah. and go through stuff and jam on things. There's some tracks on that, the white album box set that but they're like really interesting to hear mm-hmm. especially if you're familiar with the the finished recording where they got to yeah you know so when you know the finish line it's really interesting to see what uh what steps they took along the way i, I think it's it. also cool that it sort of um i guess like humanizes them a little bit also like mm-hmm. because they're mm-hmm. they're put on such a high pedestal especially to i feel like people that have were never alive you know like people our age and younger or even a little bit older that were never alive when the beatles were mm-hmm. in existence and they've you know they've just sort of grown into this i don't even know like what's the word to describe <laughs> like what's the word i want to uh, use mythologize yeah like this sort of godlike sure. status which you yes. know there's yeah. there's a, a okay rationale to that they've did some amazing things. Um, but it's sort of like, it, it's not like they just like shit out gold bricks only, you know, like <laughs> right. they had some trash and, you know, they joked around in the studio, like 20 something dudes do, you know, like yeah. they, they were humans. Yeah. They were just making music and having fun doing it. And I think mm-hmm. that's kind of nice to like add a bit of like a humanity aspect to the, the mythology of the Beatles. Yeah, that is that is really nice. There's a take of you never give me your money 
on the Abbey Road 50th anniversary, and you can hear Paul. It's just cool to hear him warming up, you know, and he plays a little bit of the fool, the fool in the hill, mm-hmm. and he makes some joke. He basically sings the lyric, "You never give me your coffee." And he makes some joke about what time it is. I guess it was taking a while to set up a mic or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then he immediately goes into this gorgeous vocal. So, yeah, it's like a cool reminder that that voice you hear on Strawberry Fields or whatever that's been kind of disembodied and godlike and a piece of art for a long, long time. Uh, right before that and right after that was just a guy at a microphone mm-hmm. making maybe making jokes Trying you know, to impress having, chicks, having a cigarette or whatever. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> exactly. It is really. It's a. It's really a, a remarkable reminder. Yeah, that's a great point. How do you think? You know, as as a, a creative person, as a storyteller, a filmmaker, a journalist, how do you find that the Beatles, either musically, personally, or whatever, have how how has that impacted your career and your journey and what you do? A couple of ways. I mean, I'm I'm really constantly inspired with, I'm constantly inspired by them in terms of how they collaborate. I think we hit on that a little bit just when we talk later about uh, how they kind of self-edited. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there there just there really are a lot of life lessons to take from. And actually, today is, by the way, I mean, you probably know this, today is July 6th, yep. which is the day that John and Paul met yep. first in Liverpool in 1957. That's true. So it's the anniversary of that at a little church a little church party, just as one example of how their, their type of collaboration has inspired me and I think can probably inspire other people. It's just that, and John Lennon is quoted his audio is in the uh, the anthology documentary talking about this, where he had this moment of truth or this, you know, fork in the road where he, he could have continued as the quarryman, you know, John Lennon and band, or, you know, he met this kid who's a little bit younger, but, you know, can play Eddie Cochran like fire and has a great voice and is just as interested in music as he is. Um, you know, or he can invite that guy into the band and have some competition and have another another artist with vision mm-hmm. in the same group. And to me, you know, that that's one of the things I think collaboration is so difficult for a lot of people. And I'm not excluding me from that list, but I, I've had a lot of practice at it. And um, one of the big things is you know, being open to bringing somebody else's energy and talent and vision into your project or into your vision mm-hmm. and letting it grow what you can actually see, you know, maybe even beyond what your initial plan was. So whatever John Lennon envisioned the Quarrymen being, obviously the Beatles uh, blew up into the stratosphere beyond that, you know, and that doesn't happen unless... He says, hey, Paul, you want to come to my house and write some songs? Right. Um, you know, and that, that's a big thing. And he and he talks about it being a big decision for him personally. Um, so he, he admitted that, which is, I think, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of self-reflection involved in that. Um, because he could have been fine on his own. But um, but so the idea of in, in creative life and your creative walk being open to collaborating in a way that builds something beyond your initial vision, I think is really important. Um, and that takes, that takes a certain amount of humility, humility. Um, and it takes a certain amount of, uh, yeah, I have to be really giving and really, uh, just, just kind of extra, um, extra giving with, with your talent. Uh, you know, like the way that they, the way that they helped each other with each other's songs, um, in in the same way, um, songs that you know John would never sing. Uh, he would uh, he would help Paul finish up something or help him change some lyrics, things like that. Um, so so that was a really um, that that that's something that I take away as as a, a good lesson from from their collaboration, for sure. Wow, did you just make a case for? John Lennon actually being very humble and generous. 
He had a, he had a yeah he had a moment when he was seventeen <laughs> on this day. <laughs> That one Many time. Just that once. <laughs> yeah. I love it. That's amazing. It's a place I never thought we would go. But <laughs> you know, but I think there's some truth to that. We're gonna un- we're gonna just keep keep peeling keep peeling back layers of this onion. I love it. And just uncover more and more secrets. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Well, let's jump into the uh into the ranking. You ready? Sure. Let's do it. Uh Julia, drum roll, please, if you will. Coming in at number two sixteen from the anthology is If You've Got Trouble. <laughs> So if you've got trouble, this is basically for every album at this point, uh, Ringo had a lead vocal on every record, except for A Hard Day's Night. Um, he hadn't really written anything by himself at this point in their career, so he was either provided with something suitable by John and Paul, or he would do a cover song. Um, if You've Got Trouble was written by John and Paul in early 1965 during the sessions for help, intended to be Ringo's big vocal moment. However, didn't quite pan out so well. Uh, they recorded a backing track in one and only one attempt. <laughs> They played it one time, uh, and it seems like even just in the performance, nobody's really sold on what they're doing. Um, so they finish the track, Ringo double tracks his vocal, George overdubs a guitar track, and that's the last time they touch it. It basically goes straight to the vaults where it sits until the 80s, uh, when Jeff Emmerich does some edit work on it uh, for what was tentatively going to be called uh, Sessions. An, an early mm. version of the anthology of just outtakes and, uh, and alternate takes. Um, but the whole record itself got the kibosh before it came out. Um, Paul, Ringo, and George decided to not move ahead in that direction. So, that said, um, if you've got trouble, <laughs> stay back in the vaults again until 1995 or 6, whatever year the anthology came out. Um, mm-hmm. And there it sat. So, I've yeah. got this song... All the way down at number 216. Uh, I guess I'll tell you a little bit why I think that. Then you can tell me how you feel about it. The okay. one, of the, one of the things that I think is really fascinating about the Beatles, uh, there's really not a ton of unreleased songs. And not, I don't mean as, as far as outtakes or alternate versions. I just mean actual full songs. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really interesting to hear that. But it's also interesting to hear them completely swing and miss not just in composition, but in performance as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it starts off promising, like that opening kind of two-bar drum intro sounds really cool and mm. energetic, um, but then it just kind of comes in and sounds really lazy and phoned in. Like, nobody sounds like they're committed to it. Ringo's vocal's kind of messy. Guitar playing's kind of sloppy. Everyone sounds tired. Um, I think kind of the moment that's just so telling, and I think also... You have to also consider, like, they're working at such a breakneck pace constantly. Like, the fatigue is just naturally going to catch up. And, like, the year before, when they're doing Honey Don't, they get to the solo and, you know, Ringo throws out, rock on, George, one time for me. And they're having a great old time. And then this one, it's just, oh, fucking rock on anybody. (laughs) It's just such an amazingly... It's just such a bad call out. So I've never, I had never heard that song before I listened to it for the show and I was listening to it by myself. And when I got to that section of the song, like I was kind of like typing an email at the same time, just like I give it a few listens. Um, And when I got to that part, I was like, I'm sorry, did he just say rock on anybody Anybody. like literally anyone just chime in whenever you feel like it like the janitor (laughs) abby Rhodes, like yes all right i got this uh i like i like opened up the window and i was like pause rewind did i hear that correctly i did oh well he only had one shot yeah (laughs) it's like Hey, somebody come in and make this song exciting. Yes. Can somebody <laughs> salvage what we're trying to do here? You know, yeah. and, and I think some of the more telling things about it, and these are verbatim quotes in anthology, George's quote is saying, it's the most weird song. It's got stupid words <laughs> and is the naffest song. No wonder it didn't make it onto anything. And then 
Paul's quoted in the Complete Beatles recording sessions uh, by Mark Lewison as saying they didn't take Ringo's songs as seriously as the others. And that's pretty mm. much exactly how it sounds. It sounds like they're totally phoning something in to meet the fact that Ringo has to have a track on the record. Um, mm. And I think they inevitably make the right choice by throwing it to the side. Um, mm. You know, I think there are a couple of the cool, I guess the only things that I think are kind of cool about it, you know, I like the drum sound of it sonically. It's got a cool sound and he's just, he's just washing on his ride cymbal the whole time. Uh, the yeah. kick and snare sound really big. Um, and I think the guitar tone is actually kind of interesting and chiming. And it's this weird mix of, I think John's on his Strat, George is on his, um, on his Gretsch. Um, I think maybe right. he overdubbed on a casino at some point. Um, so it's, it's a sonically interesting song, but the song itself is just not up to snuff. And I think they made, mm. I think it's the right call to, to let it you know sit on the shelf. You know, what's interesting. And I'm just thinking about this now is, so we haven't, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the anthology version was either, either the version that's on that CD is mixed is the, is the version that was mixed for sessions or it was mixed in the, in the early nineties for anthology. So I don't think we've ever actually heard a, a 1965 mix. Right. Not that I, that's going to save anything, but it yeah. would be interesting <laughs> to hear how they would have done it. Yeah. Cause I know when, uh, when Emmerich went back to it, he edited and switched the verses. Um, yeah. But I'm not sure what, if what's on anthology is that switch or if it's original. I have to go mm -hmm. back and dig around a little bit. Yeah. Um, out of curiosity. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I ne I've never really enjoyed the song per se, but, but there were, it was a curiosity. I think in, in some cases, uh, you know, I was, I was curious about it kind of like I, I, like I was at the time as a teenager with all Ringo tracks mm -hmm. in a way, um, which is not entirely fair, but, uh, so I, I find that the track is, um, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. Like it's, there's, there's, uh, a, a lack of energy, obviously. Yeah. Like you said, they, they only, only did one take of the, of the instruments. I think there's one brief guitar overdub, but they really didn't spend a lot of time on it. And, and I think it was recorded very early in the, in the sessions. Yeah. So it was almost like they were trying to, trying to get Ringo's track done and out of the way. Mm -hmm. Um, but then they, they were, 1965 was their busiest year. Um, I, they did two different sessions for the Help album. One, one session was a couple of weeks before they made the film, and, and one session was a couple of weeks after they made the film. I think this was before the film. Yeah. And they also recorded two other songs that day. So um, it might not even be fair to say they're trying to get Ringo's song out of the way when really they're trying to get every song out of the way. Right. Um, but, of course, John and Paul's are going to get a little bit more more time and attention. Um at least at the the workshopping stage, the songwriting stage. Mm -hmm. um, but I, this song, you know, pretty much Brian Epstein made sure that any Lennon McCartney song, uh, whether it was recorded uh, by the band or not, um, was covered by somebody else. You know, usually an artist that was on his in his stable of uh, bands that he signed when the when the Beatles got big, he started representing other people. Right. Um, and so it's pretty telling that no one covered Nobody this touched song. It. <laughs> nope. this song. So I think that probably says something. And, um, you know, I guess you kind of have to look at Act Naturally as the substitute for this, you know. And I mm -hmm. think that's, you know, it's, it's obviously a, a better written song. And, and, and it's also kind of cool to see Ringo kind of step into his love affair with country music. Mm -hmm. and see how kind of easily he sort of sidles into that. He really which, does, yeah. Yeah, which which plays into his, his uh, well, later Beatles stuff, and then, of course, his solo career right. in a big way. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think ultimately they made, they made the right call. And, yeah, I know they had some funny and kind of nasty things to say about, about the song, uh, looking back on it. But I think another interesting point, too, is overall, if you look at the Help album, it's pretty unique in that, and I think this speaks to number one how busy they were in '65, and number two, um, you know, as John Lennon said, they were smoking marijuana for breakfast at this point. Mm -hmm. um, but they were a little bit like unsure of 
what they were doing in 1965, mostly because of this film commitment that they had. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the Do film schedule wise, ske- uh, schedule wise, but also creatively because they were locked in to make this feature film. They didn't have a title for it. You know, we don't get the great song help unless they come up with that title. And John writes a song that turns out to be very personal and confessional, but it started because he was because they hit on that that name help. There were all kinds of eight arms to hold arms you to hold and you, yeah. some other like really funny uh, titles that they would have had to work in as a lyric to one of the songs. Um, and and t- listening to them talk about the film uh, during the anthology documentary, that was really kind of pieced together too at the script stage, mm-hmm. where they wanted to do a skiing scene because they, that's where they wanted to go vacation, and they wanted to, to go to the Bahamas. <laughs> so they wrote that into the movie, um, and 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 the and the sessions were kind of pieced pieced together in a few different parts. So if you look at the the Help album, there are three songs that they recorded completely um, that were not used on the album, mm-hmm. which I think speaks to just how unsure they were about what they were doing because they were always trying to evolve. And I think they didn't want to make a Hard Day's Night Part Two, but they pro- they they weren't quite sure of what they were. I don't think they were quite sure of their next step. And that's that. Maybe that's reading too much into it. But you've got um, obviously this this track. Um, if you've got trouble, you've got that means a lot, mm-hmm. uh, which they they ended up ended up giving away. And then you've got Wait, uh, which they held for six months and remixed and put out on Rubber Soul. Correct. So yeah. I think it's the only Beatles album where they where they recorded three songs completely and, and were quote unquote finished and they didn't they didn't come out right. on that particular album. So it's just interesting to think about that too. It seems like they were a little unsure of what they what their next big step would be. I think even I think that's a really phenomenal songs. Yeah, and I think that's a really good assessment because I feel like it's the last record where they kind of have their foot in the beat group sound a little bit. Um, but yeah. they're also moving into folksier stuff, um, a little more rock stuff. Um, and sonically, I think it's, it's kind of an Island to itself. No other Beatles mm-hmm. tra- Beatle album sounds like that one. Um, and a lot of it yep. is instrumentation they're using. They've got that, that Honor pianet on a lot of tracks. Um, a lot of acoustic, a lot of, you know, 12 string. Um, and it kind of gives it its own little, you know, its own little life, which I think is interesting to look at it in terms of, you know, just not knowing quite where to go and what that turn yeah. can turn something into, you know? Yeah. And I think it's, the, I think it's the first record too, where John and Paul are, t- are no, we'll do the keyboard part ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause he had pretty much stepped in and, and played all the little piano pieces. Yeah. Uh, and he still did a few after that, but I, I'm pretty sure John and Paul did, did the bulk of the keyboard work. Yeah. So they were, maybe they felt a little, little uneasy about that, or maybe that was the record where they, they felt most confident to, to first try that. But that seems to be a, a new thing too. And then yesterday, uh, which was a song Paul was working on for 18 months, mm-hmm. finally, um, finally appears on help. So yeah, it's a really interesting record, but I, I, I yeah, I think it's not, uh, it's not worse off because they, they dropped if you've got troubles, I think. Yeah. And, and I, think I think better I think, for that admission. Yeah. And I think also, you know, this, this kind of ties into the idea of, 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 of being able to self filter and kind of quantity or quality over quantity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a, a, another band could have said, well, you know, we've tracked 14 songs, you know, the record's done and then help has, you know, if you've got trouble and, um, yeah. That means and and that means a lot, yeah. That means a lot, yeah. And and you've got a very different sounding record with songs that aren't quite as mm-hmm. good as what ends up on there. Um, and I think mm-hmm. you know, even looking at yesterday, when you hear those that kind of early uh, earlier take that's on anthology, where he's showing George chords on it in a different tuning, um, and you're you know thinking you know what other parts they might have tried on that, having the ability to look and remove what ultimately would be, I guess, unnecessary, you know, to, to not yeah. overplay it, to not overcook the cake, so to speak, um, you know, is right. what makes that song so special because all it needs to be is vocal guitar and strings. It doesn't need to have right. a, a percussion overdub or a bass track or a, a you know, a lead track. Um, yeah. and not a lot of bands I think would, 
would take the time or have the, um, have the idea to kind of pull the trigger on that. Right. Yeah. And I think part of the, the idea of, of, of self edit, editing is also, you know, the important thing too, is that they weren't too pre- precious with their own compositions mm-hmm. where they, they didn't immediately think, well, if you've got trouble is obviously better than act naturally because we wrote it, right. you know, they, they weren't too, they weren't too big headed to, to decide, you know, not to, to throw a couple of covers on the record um, because, and they, they just acknowledge that these are, these are better songs than what we've got. And, and so let's do that. Let's do Dizzy Miss Lizzie because we love playing that live and then act naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's a cool thing too. That, I think that's, that's a lesson as well. Again, of, that's like a collaboration lesson. Yeah. Uh, Going all me. in on the humility of the Beatles tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I think also, I I think also, um, you know, that's something that I, I personally find a lot of their solo work kind of lacks that same Mm. filter on, on quality. Um, it's almost like when they were no longer trying to, Mm. you know, reach for the same bar collectively, um, you know, people's targets kind of got lower. Um, Mm. because there's a lot of stuff. I mean, as much as I love a lot of the solo records, there's, you know, there's stuff that's, you know, not great on just about every <laughs> solo record and especially in the seventies. Um, I'm sorry. There's no bad wings. <laughs> there are no bad wings songs. <laughs> we do not disrespect wings in this house. That, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely a lot of misses when they're not, you know, when they don't have that collaboration, you know, going on yeah. between the four of them. Yeah, I think that's the difference. There's, there's always a difference between a singular vision and a collaborative vision, for mm-hmm. sure. And I think that played out uh, pretty vividly when you compare the Beatles stuff to their their solo work. Yeah, yeah, for better and for worse. For better in some cases, I think. All right. Well, so at at two sixteen, do you feel that that's a uh, a decent number for uh, for if you've got trouble? Would you put it higher, lower in your own personal rankings? Um, no, I think. I think that's pretty spot on. I mean, I'm envisioning that maybe you and I will disagree on a couple of things down the line, but I, I would probably have have it at about the same spot, you know, and and it's a song that they cut, so they would probably agree with you too. <laughs> Valid. <laughs> Excellent. Well, because this is a special double episode, we're going to do another song. Cool. Coming in at number 215, How Do You Do It? What you do to me, I wish I knew. If I knew how you do it to me, I'd do it to you. How do you do what you do to me? I'm feeling blue. Wish I knew how you do it to me, but I have no clue. How do you do it? Mm. <laughs> I don't know. Um, how do you do it? Was written by fella named Mitch uh, Mitch Murray uh, with assistance from Barry Mason. Uh, Mitch Murray brought this demo to George Martin's assistant Ron Richards and Richards and Martin were both convinced it could be a hit. Um, So basically George Martin strong-armed the Beatles into cutting this and intended it to be their debut single. Uh, The band did not really want to record it. They were convinced that they had original songs that were just as strong but also being smart enough to not rock the boat they went ahead and recorded the track anyway. Uh, The song was mixed and mastered for release at the time, and the band was able to actually ultimately convince the powers that be uh, to let them push Love Me Do as their debut, and How Do You Do It got shelved until the 90s. Now, the song didn't ultimately go away when they shelved it, though. It was recorded by Jerry and the Pacemakers, who were also managed by Brian Epstein. Uh, It was actually a pretty sizable hit for them. Mitch Murray went on to have quite a successful career as a music writer uh, all the way through into the 70s, uh, mm. In the 60s, he wrote songs like I'm Telling You Now by Freddie and the Dreamers, who I think were mm. also another Brian Epstein act, but definitely part of that Mersey Beat scene. Um, and then in the 70s, he was the writer on Billy Don't Be a Hero and The Night Chicago Died. Classic. Sha-na-na-na-na-na-na. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, he wrote a book in 1964 called How to Write a Hit Song. 
which Sting cites as the book that got him into songwriting. And he also refers to Murray as his mentor. So, no. uh, yeah, dead serious. So you can uh, thank this guy it. for Sting. What an amazing factoid. Right? Like, things That's worked wild. out pretty well for this guy. <laughs> yeah. So good for him. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, going back and listening to this song, and this is not one that I ever, you know, intentionally put on. I'm never like mm. in the mood to yeah. hear how do you do it. I think it's a fine song. It's not bad. Um, there's, you know, they do a good job with it. It's it's such a lightweight song, though. You know, yeah. th- their argument was they felt they couldn't show their faces at the Cavern Club with this kind of like rinky dink song as their single. I think that's <laughs> the right call. You know, it's really got no substance to it. I think that's accurate also. But it also, I don't know that it has much more substance than Love Me Do. I think the <laughs> difference is Love Me Do has the weight of being uh, a self-penned composition. No, I find Love Me Do much more peppy than this song. Like, I, I think... Peppy Love or me... like in terms of quality of song? Uh, Both. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Both. Um, Love Me Do has those like sort of choppy starts and stops to it. You know, like mm-hmm. it sort it sort of like hits hard. Like this song um is just it's a real snooze fest. <laughs> you know, what we do has those like hits though. It's like you know like it it it's uh, I'm so bad at explaining this. You're <laughs> talking the, about like coming out of the solo. Oh. <laughs> hit the microphone. Gonna, it hits that hard. Yeah. It hits that hard. We're going to cut. Leaving that point. in. No, we're cutting all that <laughs> But yeah, I think it's all just like, it's perfectly acceptable. Um, right, right. I, I think John and Paul's harmonies are pretty nice on it. George has some nice little kind of melodic guitar parts he's doing. Um, I think within the melody, the way the vocal lifts on the word do, on the how do you do, like, it's it's well it's way more suited for like kind of a showbiz character, which I think Jerry Marsden like fits that way like way better and mm-hmm. it works really well for him. Um, yeah. I need a little razzmatazz in yeah. there. <laughs> and yeah, like with with John doing it, it just doesn't quite have that thing to it. Um, yeah. But yeah, you know, I think it's a fine song, and I think it would have been successful if they'd put it out. Um, I think it would have maybe changed the trajectory of the band had they put it out. And not had kind of that instant allure mm. of like these guys write their own songs behind sure. it. I think it would have just been just kind of another successful pop tune. Yeah. So, so if you look at the cover, Jerry's cover, I think you hit the nail on the head with the term showbiz because he's got, you know, he's dressed in a suit, which the Beatles wore often, but he's got his arms out and he's kind of like looking at the camera like, hey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and. John and Paul in particular, George could take it or leave it, all of it, all the show, this stuff. Yeah. But John and Paul particularly were always kind of cracking on it, you know, and that's why they were so funny in all their early interviews, because they were really taking all the press and and the kind of fame of it as sort of a joke. And, uh, and that's why they were so hilarious. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons that that charisma really won over George Martin and the powers that be at EMI. Um, you know, I think there's the story of George Harrison telling George Martin that he didn't like his tie right. when they when they first met him. Like first meeting um, with their producer. Anything you yeah, don't they're, like, they're, I don't like your tie. Yeah, there's kind of an irreverence that the Beatles had that is a real mismatch uh, with this song mm-hmm. and, and with the way that it was a hit. Um, so on the face of it, while I think George Martin's right, like it can be a hit for somebody... Um, I, you know, I agree with the band. It's, I don't think it's, I don't think it's their song. So while, while I think, um, I I think their main, their main gripe against it was they wanted to stake a claim as not putting out singles that were written by other people. Mm -hmm. I think they, I think they just wanted to set that, set that tone early. Um, and, and I think we're all glad they did, um, but, but I have a theory, I have another theory about the song, which is that, you know, the Beatles are not from London. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's almost like, you know, Liverpool, being from Liverpool is like 
being from Pittsburgh. You know, you're definitely not from New York. Right. And, <laughs> and these four kids who, you know, for the most part, grew up pretty poor, um, get to London and they get rejected by DECA and I think a couple of other labels too. Like every label. Yeah, yeah. They, you know, Epstein got them a lot of meetings and a lot of auditions and they really failed all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was this their voices, but also something about their charisma that ended up winning over EMI. Um, but I think if I put myself in their shoes, at, you know, it's hard for us to think about the Beatles as underdogs, but in 1963, they're absolutely underdogs. Right. Who, mm-hmm. who have something to prove. Yeah. And, and I think they're, they're put into a position with this guy named George Martin, uh, who's, you know, finally accepted them. But these are irreverent, rebellious guys. And so I think my theory is that they looked at George Martin as kind of a schoolmaster. Mm-hmm early on and so when he brought them the song that he wanted them to do it was important for them to tell him no mm-hmm. yeah no matter what it was you know if it wasn't one of their songs you know i think they were going to say no if it was you know if it was a james brown song i think they would have said no i think they wanted one of their songs out and i think they wanted to stand up to the schoolmaster early on because mm-hmm. John Lennon's not going to get pushed around by anybody. Right. Now, do and, you... and there's where their an- the anti-humility comes in. <laughs> <laughs> now, do but you... I, I really think that because when you listen to the song, you know, it could have been one of the album tracks on Please Please Me. It doesn't really sound that much different and they perform it well, but I, I think they were making a stand with George Martin and kind of standing up for themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, early on uh, with, with that decision. That's, that's, that's my theory. I, I think that's really interesting. Do you think going into the idea of, of, of standing up to the powers that be, even though they dutifully cut the track and do a fine mm. job of it, you know, do you think that they're maybe not giving a hundred percent on this, but they're giving, you know, 120% to love me do. Yeah, probably so. I think if I think John Lennon giving, you know, eighty percent, seventy percent on a vocal, it's it's gonna sound like how do you do it, and it's gonna sound fine. It's mm-hmm. gonna sound good. Yeah. But I think John in nineteen sixty three could give a little bit less than a hundred percent and still sound really great. Yeah. And that 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 could have been what happened. I think you're. I think that's spot on. You know, and I, I think that kind of, you know, them betting on themselves. I think is mm. something that. I think really kind of was the kind of the linchpin for their whole career, you know, insisting on original songs for singles, um, insisting on having, you know, some control over what their movies were eventually, um, you know, betting that they could continue their level of success without touring, you know, betting on Mm -hmm. putting up like a straight out Indian classical music song, an eight minute single, like they always bet on themselves and I think that sets them up for success in ways that other bands don't necessarily get to because they're kind of leaving it to the machine or to the management um, or kind of placating to the trends of things. Whereas betting on yourself and, you know, making those kind of leaps of yeah. faith, I think is what, you know, that's one of the big things that I think, you know, gets them to where they are ultimately now and where we're still talking about them, you know, 50 something years later. Absolutely. Yeah. I think even, even though they'd been rejected by multiple labels, they had, they had an inner confidence in themselves and they wanted to be Buddy Holly, you know, Buddy Holly's singles were songs he wrote Mm -hmm. and that's, that's, that was their goal. Their goal was always higher than just, it seems like there was a, an urge for self-expression beyond just, Hey, let's record what's going to be a hit. Yeah, because so, yeah. they really looked at like songwriters mm-hmm. with the same reverence that they looked at performers. You know, like right. they wanted to be the Goffin and King of England, but mm-hmm. Goffin and King weren't the ones recording the singles. They were the ones yeah. writing them in an office somewhere. Um, That's right. You know, and I think that having that kind of idea of of combining those those two sides of the coin is what makes was what makes it so special. Definitely, and later on, later on, they they released some songs that. Um, don't sound like typical singles, of course, um, right. but they, they put it out as a single. 
and they build up the Beatles brand and fandom to the point where they, they, they did become big hits, but on the face of it, it's not something that anybody else would have released as a single. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in their early on in their, their live act, they, they played mostly B sides. Yeah. Uh, so again, that's like, yeah, they were interested in the, in the songwriter and uh, what the story was and the storytelling more so than what's the hit. And that's also how you end up with songs like Mr. Moonlight, though, <laughs> which came in at number 222 in the countdown. <laughs> right, right. There you go. Well, they can't all be winners, but so 215 yeah. for How Do You Do It? What do you think? I, I, I agree with that, too. I think this is, you know, it's just it's one of those things. They, they recorded it. They knocked they knocked out a version. But uh, there's so much more to come. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's gonna that's gonna change the world and you know this this just wasn't it wonderful man wonderful well i think i feel like we've put those to bed i feel good on that you uh you want you want to do some rapid fires real quick and we'll let you go yeah i can do that excellent all right cool rapid fire questions here we go favorite Beatles song strawberry fields forever love it least favorite Beatles song Mm. ah piggies Ooh. Interesting. Why piggies? Oh, I think it was a good idea, you know, to boil down, you know, or- Orwell's uh, Animal Farm. Mm-hmm. But something, something about the uh, the Baroque arrangement, I'm just not a fan of. I actually don't mind the es- the Easter demo, mm-hmm. the acoustic version. Um, but yeah, I just it doesn't do it for me. I, I just I never reach for that song. Okay, I like it. I like never it. In, I'm even... never in the mood for piggies. I don't know. That's we haven't funny. even gotten there yet on our list. We haven't. <laughs> I, I, I like piggies. I'm a fan of that song. <laughs> um, favorite Beatles album? Revolver. I love it. Least favorite. Or I shouldn't say least favorite. The one you go for the least. I don't think anyone has a least favorite. Uh, with the Beatles. Okay. Okay. Um, this is actually probably my favorite question. Your favorite memory associated with a Beatles song or a, a, a Beatles thing. Favorite Beatles oh. associated memory. Okay. Um, so I studied abroad in London, uh, stayed at Univers- University College London in Camden Town um, one summer in college. Mm-hmm. And uh, singing Hey Jude on a double decker bus. <laughs> <laughs> With a bunch of not sober LSU students and some <laughs> really confused locals, uh, was was a really great moment. <laughs> That's I think awesome. I did some of my best singing on that bus. Not man, if only the bootleg would come out. <laughs> if only <laughs> on the Jeffrey Rodell anthology. That's a fantastic <laughs> memory. I love it. Man, I love it. Jeff, man, this has been a blast. I, I hope you've enjoyed it. You know, what what do you have going so on right now? Anything you got g- upcoming that you want to plug? So fun. Um, yeah, well, I'm constantly doing a lot of uh, video work promoting the state. You know, I'm, I can't talk about a whole lot of it, but we're trying to get the economy going through this pandemic and all this stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. Personal personal projects. Uh, actually, I found myself writing, uh, creative writing more during uh, shutdown, during quarantine. Uh, I've written some poems just um, over the last couple of months, and I'm going to try to record those and set some music to it. Nice. And uh, do some some experimental recording with that. And then I'm also working on a a screenplay for a short film. So uh, nothing immediately in the fire, but hopefully Mm -hmm. the fall, uh, some creative projects will start coming out. And then people can always check out wondersouth.com and wondersouth.com on Instagram and my Instagram at Jeffrey Rodell for uh, various projects I have going on. Excellent. I'm going to have all that information in the uh, episode description as well. Great. Great. Wonderful. Well, Jeff, thank you so much, man. It's so great to get to catch up with you. I've really enjoyed it. I hope to come back again on a future episode. I will. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. You have a great thing going. Thanks, man. It's really nice to talk to both of y'all. Thank you so much. Jeffrey Rodell, everybody. Big hand for Jeff. a lot of fun to talk with him good times i really enjoyed that one that was a good one yeah i feel like after we have these talks sometimes it's like man we feel like we dove on some stuff i like it dove deep yeah we extolled the virtues of the humbleness the humbleness of the beatles they're so humble so humble so so (laughs) humble and number 216 that was 
if you've got trouble, and two, 15, how do you do it? Well, real snooze fest. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you guys have enjoyed it. Um, I hope you have thoughts or opinions on this. And if you do, you can throw them on our Facebook page at Ranking the Beatles. You can throw them on our Instagram at Ranking the Beatles. Or shoot us an email, rankingthebeatles at gmail.com. We'd love to know what you think. We have a lot of songs to get through. There are a <laughs> lot of songs to get through. 2023 is far ways away, assuming that we all make it. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Dun. <laughs> all right. Well, that's it for today, you guys. I hope you've all had fun. We've had a good time. Did you have fun? I did. Wonderful. Bye, Beetle people. Adios, Beetle people. My name is Jonathan. I'm Julia. Chill till the next episode. See you next time. Adios. <laughs>